Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Center for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. I'm Ava. And I'm Beth. And on Minds Matter, we explore research from neuroscience to psychology whilst talking about our own personal experiences. This week on the podcast, I spoke to Dr. David Markowitz, who is an assistant professor at the University of Oregon in the School of Journalism. And he's also an incoming associate professor at Michigan State University in the communications department. In this episode, we talk about lies and deception in the realms of technology like dating apps. We also talk about how often people lie, when they're most likely to do it, and why people lie. My name is Dr. David Markowitz. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Journalism and Communication at the University of Oregon, and I study the psychology of language. Quite often I look at deception in language, but quite often I study just how people reveal themselves through language patterns at large. One of the things that you've looked at specifically is how people might deceive others in different mediums of text. So I was wondering if you could talk about the extension that you did of a 2004 paper that had looked at how people lie in those different types. So a real important interest has been how often are people lying? And you can go back from the 1980s all the way to today, and it's quite consistent. People tend to at least disclose that they lie one to two times per day. But that's not a monolith if you look across different forms of media. So, for example, a 2004 paper looked at how different parts of media, like these different features, such as the synchronicity of the medium, such as like we're having a conversation right now back and forth, the recordability of the medium, and also the distributed nature of the communication. Are we far away from each other or not? And look at look to see how those different features might actually predict lying rates across different media and platforms. So back in 2004, the verdict was that people tended to lie most over the phone. So it was a recordless medium, it was distributed and people were synchronous. Fast forward to today, I wanted to sort of replicate or attempt to replicate those results. Essentially, we live in a very different media environment. Not only are our options more vast than before, but the sort of dynamics associated with technology are quite different than 2004. What's really, really interesting is that the results held quite well. So media that are typically recorded List, they're distributed and they're synchronous, being not only the phone, but also video chat, just like we're sort of doing right now, in addition to this podcast interview. That's where people tended to have the most lies. Theoretically, why is it that that recordless and especially synchronous types of features, why are those the ones that lead to most lying? I guess intuitively, it feels like a lot of lies take place on social media with more that like anonymity type of thing. It was interesting to me that it was more so those synchronous types of interactions. Well, just to push back a little bit, how often are you actually anonymous online? Yeah, that's true. Not often, right? Yeah. So you're, you're, you actually have a record of who you are and not only mm -hmm. a record of who you are, you have a very clear identifier that you are who you say you are. So most people are viable online, but when we have a little bit less of a record, like when you're talking on the phone or when you have a video chat, when you don't have a record that can leave people a little bit more open to using deception as a strategy for communication to achieve a variety of different communication or psychological goals. And now the distributed nature of communication 
location. That's predicted by something that's called the social distance hypothesis, where it's a little bit easier, perhaps psychologically, for people to lie when they're not as close to someone else. Psychological distancing argument, where people are essentially more comfortable or they feel like it's less problematic or less likely for someone to pick up on their deception if they're far away. And the synchronicity argument that it's really important for people to be able to see, oh, is this person on the other end buying my communication? Are they actually picking up on any specific cues or tells in my active communication? We can have a, a very clear understanding of if you're buying my argument by us going back and forth really seamlessly. So what were some of the specific types of goals that people were trying to achieve by using deception in the study? So in those studies, we don't exactly know about specific goals, but in other studies, goals are a really important interest in terms of what are people trying to achieve with their deception. So for example, I think we also want to talk about mobile dating deceptions and the lies that people tell in order to get love. Two goals in particular actually accounted for over two thirds of all the goals that people had when they were communicating their lies to a partner. These are goals related to self-presentation, trying to look really attractive interesting and likable. And another goal, what we call availability management goals. So you're trying to manage quite easily how available you appear or seem to others. It's really negative when you appear incredibly desperate when you're trying to online date with someone, right? Especially when you don't know them. So if you were to answer right away on your phone, oh, how's your day going? Oh, it's amazing. How about your day? Like it's, wow, does this person not have a life? Like what's going on? Why are they answering right, right away? So lies that were told to sort of massage that relationship. Again, it's not trying to be a jerk, but it's trying to manage how available you are. It's oh, so sorry, I didn't see your message right now, or I'm sorry my phone died, when really uh, those were strategic, they were intentional, they were also deceptive in order to sort of put a distance between you and the other person, and technology can facilitate that. Now, the key is that it doesn't facilitate more lying, just different types of lying. So it seems like for that availability type of goal, there's potentially two reasons that someone might lie about that. One is that they're actually not interested in that person and trying not to be a jerk about it and kind of being like, oh, I wasn't on my phone. I didn't have the time. Or they're kind of trying to play that game and those different norms of trying not to be as available. So are we able to separate those types of lies? I think you're picking up on something that's really cool. And we haven't separated that actually in literature yet. So I, I've sort of just been thinking about this in the past five seconds, but it's either playing it cool or ending it right? So you're trying to play it cool, like, oh, of course, oh, I, I was just doing something really important. Of course, I didn't see your message. I'm so sorry, but you're still interested. You don't want to end the relationship. Or the other one is, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't see your message. My reason for delaying the interaction is because I really just don't want to see you or talk to you anymore. And those are two very different psychological pathways. And it could be really interesting to see like which one's more prevalent, but more importantly, what they reveal psychologically about people. So how frequently are people telling these types of lies on dating apps? Yeah. So again, all these, so lies are very infrequent, right? So they're not the norm. They are the exception. So in general, on average, people told about less than one out of every 10 messages were deceptive. So around 7% of messages were deceptive, 7.1, 7.4 in different studies, right? But the ones that we've had is about 7, 7%. And that sort of flies in the face of what most people think is going on, not only in online dating, but with deception in general. So I'll have a bunch of students in classes, not only when deception classes, but in general journalism communication classes, where I say, how often do you think people are lying? 
and I'll get percentages that range all the way from like 70% to 95%. And what's kind of interesting is that when you contextualize that, so I say, well, you're telling me that seven out of every 10 messages are deceptive. And then students sort of walk it back and say, okay, well, maybe that's not exactly the case. We think that deception is more prevalent. That's, I think, a really interesting research question. Why are our intuitions about deception really wrong? Why does it not match the evidence? And this is just not one-offs. These are decades worth of studies. And it's really important to think about like why deception is is that exception, but still really important and consequential for us psychologically. So in the past, when this has been studied, were people also overestimating the amount of deception that they thought that other people were engaging in? Or is this more of a recent phenomenon? So we actually, do, I'm familiar with work actually of okay. asking people to estimate how much deception there is mm -hmm. in everyday life. But what's really interesting is actually in that same paper about deception in mobile dating and also some more recent work that I published, there's what's called the deception consensus effect. It's a false consensus effect for deception, essentially drawing on a lot of Lee Ross's work where the more, it's an egocentric bias. So the more that you think things are going on in the world, it really reveals a lot about you. The deception consensus effect essentially is the idea that the more that we think others are lying, the more that we lie and the reverse is true. So it's an egocentric bias. So if we lie a lot, we think the world's a very dishonest place. If we're pretty honest, we think the world's an honest place. So our rates or perceptions about deception in everyday life are often tied to our own behavior, our own perceptions. That's really interesting. I guess the, the reason I ask that is because I was thinking of your students who are probably like Gen Zs who grew up on the internet and who are also seeing the rise of these amazing filters and AI and types of things that kind of allow you to deceive people in a more subtle way that's not necessarily in language, but mm -hmm. maybe in how you're presenting yourself online in these ways that people can't really tell. And I think that also makes, from what I've seen on TikTok, there's kind of this feeling of insecurity and feeling like other people are constantly deceiving you. And there's these accounts that specialize in exposing influencers or trying to show real faces and bodies. So I'm wondering, kind of in line with that Lee Ross stuff, that maybe people are engaging in that type of behavior more, but also seeing it more and therefore feel like there's more deception. Is that possible? It's certainly possible. One thing that's also kind of interesting, though, is that we find that there are many offline examples of, if you want to call it deception in some degree that's related to self-presentation. Like for example, people who might wear heels to make them a little bit taller, right? Men and women, right? We don't think of that as deception, right? We just think of that as like people in society might view taller people as more attractive. We don't think of that as deception, but we think of other forms of enhancing the self, right? As perhaps deceptive. And why is that disconnect there? Like why is it when it's an online example, we think of deception? But an offline example, we think of honesty, yet the sort of underlying principles are kind of consistent. So I think whenever we think about deception and technology, we often think there must be more of it. But it's actually really not the case. Again, we can extend this argument all the way to some phenomena such as fake news and disinformation. There's really amazing work, again, just published in 2021 that looked at media diets, how often people are like consuming fake news or disinformation. It is... Fake news or disinformation is like essentially the most exception compared to the rule. It's like only 0.15% of all people's media diets. Now, some may argue, well, that's just still too high and the costs to society are really grand if we even have that much there, right? But over 99% of, of information we consume is on it. And that's a great thing. But also we have to think about like strategies and ways to mitigate even just that 0.15%.
So is that specifically for news articles that are read online or is it all types of content? I believe it's just related to okay. media that people consumed. Okay. I'm just wondering, so then how do you define deception? Because there seem to be these fuzzy lines, how do you look at that in your research? I guess a lot of it is more based on language. So maybe the lines are a little bit cleaner, but just wondering how you think about that generally. Overall, so in, even before we get into the verbal or nonverbal aspects of it, right? So we, it's like usually like a two-pronged model. So the first one is fairly obvious. It's like a statement must be false, right? Or an act must be false. But the other critical component is intentionality. So it must be deliberate and intentionally false. Otherwise, it's a mistake or an error, despite something being false, right? It's where we sort of draw the line between disinformation and misinformation. Disinformation is outright deception, right? You're trying to pull a fast one on someone where you know what the truth is, but the other person doesn't. This information, it's a mistake. It still is false, but you didn't intend it to be. Another critical part of, if you want to say like a three-pronged model of deception would be where the truth is a problem. And I find this to be a really elegant way of thinking about deception because quite often, if you look at literature from the 80s, 90s, or even some folks today, they suggest that liars have this really difficult time and they go through a struggle of trying to decide lie versus truth and experiencing this cognitive load when lying. It's actually not really the case. Sometimes lying is the easier option just because the truth is really problematic. And that's a really critical part of honesty and deception because quite often lies are told because they help to achieve some goal. And sometimes if you really need to tell someone something that deviates from the truth, that's just the best thing for you. It's easier. So I'm hearing that sometimes the outcomes of lies are, are very different, right? So sometimes it's more self-serving, deceiving someone else for an end that's not necessarily pro-social, but in other cases it can be pro-social. So of course there, there are self-serving lies or other serving lies, right? So let's say a family member got a really awful haircut, objectively awful, right? But it would be pretty problematic and also hurtful if you told them. So little white lies such as, oh, your hair looks great, or perhaps nobody's actually fooled. Maybe they're like, yeah, I know my haircut looks terrible. And maybe the communicator knows that as well that sort of just makes communication work. It makes interactions work. And that's such a beautiful, evolutionarily adaptive thing for us to do. So in the context of dating, do the goals that motivate people to lie or be deceptive in whatever type of way it may be, do those evolve from the dating phase into our long-term relationships? I'm assuming that in the dating phase, it would be more lying about height if you're a man on your profile, or maybe those availability lies. And then that goes into more of the, the lies that are more maintenance of the relationship. Yeah, we don't have great longitudinal evidence. We only have just some cross-sectional data where the more that people lied in general, the more that they were interested in sort of more short-term relationships compared to long-term ones. And it's it's quite interesting to think about the possibility of tracking couples long-term and tracking daters long-term to figure out how their goals and lying tendencies actually map onto like the status of their relationship, how their relationship evolves over time. You just don't have those data, unfortunately. It's interesting that people who lie more often early on are not interested in long-term things. Is there any evidence of that playing into the concept of like authenticity and presentation? It's possible. One interesting thing is that when we think about why deception could be more prevalent for short-term relationships, if we think about like if you lie a lot, what that might do for the foundation of a relationship, right? So you could imagine lying a lot about perhaps consequential or even inconsequential things, they will add up over time and be discovered. So if you lie a lot and that's what your goal is, and it turns out you really want to date someone long-term, that's going to 
create a pretty shaky scaffolding for building something that's long-term. So thinking about the frequency of deception, mapping that onto goals, it's really critical areas. Are people generally aware of the fact that they're presenting themselves in a way that's not true? Yeah, these are all people who like, so we ask people to rate on scales of one to five, like how deceptive mm. was this message all the way from one to not deceptive at all to five, extremely deceptive. And we gave definitions of what deception actually is and examples. Uh, and yes, yeah, so people are very aware of it and they have no problem really identifying their lies. So in those dating studies, you have people go through their messages and then... Exactly right. They go through their logs, have them write out their messages, and we have them rate them after. And then have human coders go in and we code them based on the different goal types. Oh, you have other people code on the goals. You don't ask the participants themselves Correct. about the goals. It, uh, it's possible that the senders themselves might actually not have access to understanding. Oh yeah, what was I like... What was I perhaps trying to achieve here? We can have outsiders or human coders who are trained in social scientific research and understanding how people are trying to communicate goals through messages, have people do that in a really reliable and objective way. So is there any worry in that type of research that the people who are compulsive liars are also lying about the fact that they're lying or does that? Yeah, that we, we get this question all the time, meta deception. Yeah. So there are a few reasons why you don't think it's necessarily a problem. First one is that there's really no reason for people to lie to us. They're I, they're not identifiable. They're completely anonymous. Their their data stored securely, all the stuff to safeguard them from ever being outed. And so yeah, they really have no reason to lie to us. And across decades of, of studies, we find that no matter how we sort of ask different types of deception questions or how we probe at deception, we sort of center on many key and seminal findings about how often people lie, so that one to two lies per day finding, and the stability of lying dynamics over time. So these things sort of stay quite, quite similar. So as someone who studies dating apps, do you have any advice for how people should be presenting themselves on these apps? Some advice that I would give would just be authentic, genuine self is really important because regardless of wanting short or long-term relationships, being who you are is really critical. That doesn't necessarily mean that you should be devoid of deception. I'm not the honesty police here, but essentially mm -hmm. exaggerations, they're not entirely problematic for just sort of like getting your foot in the door for dates. I'm not advocating for people to lie. But what I'm saying is that small exaggerations might actually perhaps increase liking, increase attractiveness, but really core foundational parts of the self really should always remain honest. Yeah, I've seen some research on kind of like aspirational self-deception. There's this research, maybe 10 years ago or more, where they had college students come in and they asked them to self-report their grades and they found that the people who inflated their grades more were the ones who then ended up doing better. And it also tracked with their heart rate such that they weren't freaking out about lying. They just felt more kind of equanimity and calm. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. So I'm wondering, are there any lies that are kind of like aspirational in that sense and what you've studied? Be a lot about self-presentation lies, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, like a person suggesting, oh, I love hiking. When they're like, yeah, hiking's fine. Or I like hiking. Technically, would that be a lie? Sure. Like you're trying to intentionally provide a false belief in another person. But might that help you get a first date with someone who says that they love hiking as well? But again, one of the really important things, and this is something that was sort of pioneered in the online dating deception research many, many moons ago, is that we think of like the profile as being a really important foot in the door for understanding who people are. And the profile quite often is a promise. So 
You're not going to be lying about your height to the degree where someone's going to stare at you and say, oh my God, you are like a foot shorter than you thought you were. If you're going to exaggerate, maybe like an inch or two, even either direction, it's not going to absolutely make or break the relationship. But if you were to lie in your profile that you have no kids, then you have five kids. That's a pretty big break in trust where mostly people are predominantly honest in the things that they communicate about. So when people deceive, they're kind of doing it in a smart way then? It's a strategic way. I thought one of the things that David spoke about that was really interesting was the availability lie. So how available we are. And I know that the more available you are, kind of the less appealing you can be. But I am so bad at that lie. So anyone who knows me... If you text me, I respond in like a second. But and I can confirm. It, yeah. <laughs> and I know when it also comes to dating, that's not that's not a good look. But I just have never been able to not. I I can't look at my phone and be like, oh, I'll I'll do that later. I constant availability all the time, and I'm doing stuff. I don't know, Ava. What do you think? Are you constantly available? No, I. <laughs> You know I'm a terrible texter, which is why if it were just me, this podcast would have fallen apart because I would have, like, if it was two of me, no one would have responded after a while. So thank God for Beth for many reasons, but that's one of them. And if I don't respond, I feel like Beth will be like, are you okay? But I'm really bad at texting back because I I am, like, doing the thing where I'm constantly doing way too many things at once. And I'm one of those people who thinks I can multitask, but I really cannot. So I'll have, like, 7 million tabs open, my phone on the side. I'll see a text and I'll be like cool. I know I have to answer that, formulate the opinion in my head, everything. And then I flip my phone back over and I don't respond. So it's not even necessarily that I'm trying to not respond. It's just that I forget because my brain is cooked. cooked. (laughs) I remember once I was worried that if something happened to me and no one would know, and Ava reassured me by saying, Beth, if no one heard me for three hours, we would send out search parties. So yeah, that's the exactly. pro of being constantly available and communicating. Exactly. Yeah. when I think when with now it's just me being an airhead, but I think when I was like dating and stuff, when I first met my current partner, because he was a very slow texter and I think that was genuine on his part. But I would definitely do the thing of like, he hasn't texted me in four hours. I'm going to have to wait four hours and two minutes to text him back a hundred percent, which I think if, he, I don't even know if we've ever talked about this, but I think if he knew that he'd be like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But I was, I think I definitely had that availability stress in my mind of being like, I need to look like I'm not there too much. Another thing I thought that was interesting. I'm sure a lot of people will with the dating, the lies we tell on dating apps and whether they're really lies and what level of deception that is. And I find this really interesting because I think I've spoken a bit about when I came back to Australia during the pandemic, it was a very strange time and really hard to meet people. So dating apps kind of became the only way you could meet someone dating because we're in lockdowns. And we weren't getting a lot of social interaction. So you got so much of your self-esteem from these apps. So a lot of the things you would do is, you know, you would have your friends and you would be looking at each other's profiles and who's matching with who. But I'm not very good at, I mean, maybe you guys can even tell from our social media. I feel like Ava and I aren't great at the selfies or the 
presenting ourselves in that way. I'm I'm not good at that. And I wasn't good at that on the app either. But another thing I did initially, I was honest about doing a PhD. <laughs> I put where I went to university and I thought something about my profile isn't really working. And I kind of just want to get and go on these dates and keeping in mind, this isn't good advice. I thought, okay, well, what's kind of different about people's profiles that I can see that are getting a lot of likes. I was like, well, they're not doing something like a PhD. (laughs) So I took that off and lo and behold, I got heaps more likes. That's so sad. That's, (laughs) that's really horrible because it's obviously a gendered thing. Yeah. I don't think if a man took off that he was doing a PhD, he would be getting more likes. I think it'd be the opposite, right? I think we all like to think that we're past that age where you know, women should be seen and not heard and you don't want a woman who's too smart. But that's just, I have to say, I, I'm pretty shocked by that too. I, yeah. And I never would have even thought to take that off if I were on a dating app. Yeah, because I also had like one of these prompts and made some joke about coding. So it was clear not only was I doing a PhD, I was doing a PhD and some, like it wasn't something cool like literature. <laughs> it was Something cool, Beth, or something <laughs> classically feminine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it unfortunately, it worked. But of course, doing that, I didn't meet anyone that was a good match for me because they didn't want someone who was doing the things I was doing. Well, how did people react when you did reveal the whole truth about yourself? Like, was it surprise and dismay? Yeah, and I think you can... I feel like maybe I'm giving too much away, but you can <laughs> you can say I'm doing a PhD in philosophy, you know, and then that and maybe not so much exactly what I'm doing and those kind of things. And I think that that was maybe more. So you get to know someone a bit. They can tell that you're fine over text somehow and already like, OK, she's she's maybe a cool girl I'd want to meet. And then, oh, what are you doing? Oh, oh, I'm oh, you just say I'm studying or something like this. You know, you don't say I'm doing this PhD in computational modeling and I love it and those kind of things. That's really sad. <laughs> but, but it didn't how- work. So like, yes, I met people, but they weren't the right people. So no one do this. Yeah. I mean, that definitely matches on to what David was saying about like, you probably shouldn't lie because you're not <laughs> going to get the people that you want to match with in the end if you're lying. But I'm just curious about how you decided to take off the PhD thing. Like how much of the idea of women shouldn't be too smart or I don't want to be intimidating as a woman factored into your decision? Or was it just, this is something that's not quote unquote normal, regardless of gender norms. So I'm just going to take that out to just appear more regular. No, I, it was definitely the, the first one. Oh, so you were I, fully aware of like yeah, your perception, perception yeah. as a woman. Yeah. I think that's interesting because I'm sure that a lot of the lies on these more heteronormative dating apps are probably pretty gendered in appearance because you're trying to market yourself to as many people as possible. Like that's what those dating apps are for, right? Is like get as many swipe rights as possible. So clearly not creating an environment that allows for authenticity. No. And then because, I mean, if if you don't get <laughs> any likes, then you're not really shown to anyone. So really? You're not, yeah. The more likes you get, the more you're shown. So you have, it's also like, well, what do I need to do to be shown, to be seen? (laughs) I did. I did have a friend who was telling me about a few months where he was on dating apps and 
he became obsessed with the idea of it as a game and trying to like crack the algorithm of it. And even if he met someone that he really liked, he'd be like, no, I have to go back to the game and get as many matches and dates as I possibly can. So from the outside, it definitely seems like people like turning into monsters <laughs> like <laughs> to play the game. But also I think in David's work, it's interesting because it's about deception, but it's the line between deception, full on lies and just massaging the truth mm -hmm. is very different, right? Because you're saying that you were trying to package yourself in a way that was as pleasant as possible, or as least intimidating as possible. But we do that when we meet people anyway, right? Like you're never going to be your full self on a first date, like burping super loud if you need to or whatever. And we wouldn't count that as deception, right? So I feel those lines also seem really blurry. Yeah. And I feel like the apps are encouraging us to be deceitful because they yeah, reward this kind of profile that is these amazing photos, whatever. So I think we're encouraged to do that. Yeah. I think that's what in David's work was surprising and maybe somewhat reassuring, but also weird to hear because it didn't match up with my intuitions was that people aren't actually lying as much as you think on the internet. And even on dating apps, people aren't really lying that much of the time, but maybe we're, we're not lying, but I think maybe there's a piece missing of feeling the pressure at least to package yourself in a certain way and present yourself in a certain way and maybe become some of like the lies that you're saying. Because if you're realizing, oh, people really don't want to hear that I'm coding, maybe that will eventually cause you to really lean into the philosophy side of it. Because if you don't find anyone who is interested in you in that. And one of your biggest goals is to be able to find someone that you really connect with, that you can share your life with. Then that seems maybe you would actually change to fit that description. Uh, well, this is pretty disheartening. No, but then I did put my profile as something that was honest and I met someone great. So I think <laughs> moral of the story is to be honest, I guess. To an, Yeah. And then, yeah. And then I got less matches, but I got a match that was right, so. Quality match. You've looked at how people communicate about different outgroups. So this was the dehumanization work. So I was wondering if you could discuss that study and its findings in the context of deception that we've been talking about. So I've studied the idea of dehumanization, the treatment of outgroups as being less than in a variety of different ways. I've studied it in the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, where a variety of different Asian populations were viewed as less than or dehumanized. And I've studied immigrant populations. I've studied it in a variety of different settings and, and outgroups. But another area of mine sort of blending my deception work with dehumanization work was trying to figure out this idea of what's called deceptive dehumanization. This idea that you're going to fake support for an outgroup, but really you hold these internally negative and quite undermining beliefs about other people. And this is expressed quite often by politicians. So for example, politicians will say, of course, I don't hate this other group or I don't view them as being less than, but their policies say otherwise and their support says otherwise. So essentially looking at that linguistically could perhaps be an important psychological pathway to understand either processes or mechanisms that might be going on with with sort of this deceptive dehumanization idea. 
and essentially ran an experiment to randomly assign people to either lie or tell the truth about a group that they dehumanized or didn't dehumanize. And quite often, emotion plays a really critical role here in identifying the deceptive dehumanizer. Um, and what's really critical is we can then take some of these data points, is particularly related to negative emotion, and we can actually perhaps use them for either identification of those who might hold these internally negative views about people, but they're outwardly expressing support. It's really critical to consider language as an ingredient here of dehumanization. There's a really great quote. I think it's a Brene Brown quote, actually, that dehumanization starts with language. I think that's really critical because how you outwardly talk about people really matters. So just to understand the study, you had participants come in, rate different groups, and on a dehumanization scale? So essentially, in order to measure dehumanization, there's a really great scale by Norcatelli and colleagues um, that is called the Ascent of Man. And it's these hominids that are getting progressively larger. It's like the evolution of man, essentially, that you might either see on bumper stickers or people are, are typically familiar with this, actually, across different areas of social life. Um, and people rate that all the way from zero to 100 of where outgroups fall on that feeling thermometer. And really anything less than 100 is dehumanizing. You are calling that group of people less evolved, right? Less than fully evolved. And it's really critical to use that measure to then understand thoughts and feelings about dehumanized outgroups. And in the context of the study, after people rated a bunch of these outgroups, they were randomly selected to write about one of those outgroups and then essentially uh, lie or tell the truth about their feelings. So we know ground truth based on their dehumanization ratings, and then basically look at how their writing style can actually reflect their deceptive or honest dehumanization. And how extreme were people rating different groups? Because I'm assuming maybe some people are rating a group at like a 95, even though that is blatantly dehumanizing because you're saying they're not 100% human. Mm -hmm. But would that be someone who, if they were asked to lie about their feelings towards that group, would you be expecting them to talk about that group in a dehumanized way or in a more humanized way? If they're rating a group at a 97, are they still dehumanizing that group? Yeah, they're still dehumanizing that group because it's still not fully evolved. And in the descriptions of the ascent of man and the writing on the ascent of man, all humans are fully evolved, right? Like there should be no distinction between any sort of group. People are systematic in their judgments. I'm just looking at the table right now in the paper. The means are, are, are quite staggering. So the means are from like 80 to 90 on that feeling thermometer, right? With um, groups in the high 70s. There are a bunch of people here that believe that certain outgroups are indeed less evolved. Now, why people might feel that way, have some intuition of, based on some of our other works. One of my colleagues, Paul Slovic here at the University of Oregon has been a really great collaborator and colleague on this work, where some people are quite virtuous in their beliefs. They actually believe that thoughts on these individuals are just the right way to do it or a right way to view them. And their views are indeed virtuous. And the violence that they inflict on these individuals are quite virtuous as well. So people hold these internal beliefs quite systematically in these really horrifying and unjust ways. Wow. Okay, so people are really believing that they're correct in their assessments. They're correct, and it's the right thing. And are these just online participants? Yeah, these are cloud research participants. Okay. So nothing 
particularly, you know, you're not getting an extremely conservative sample or like proud no, boys. And, and to... I conduct this split 50-50 across self-identified Democrats and Republicans in the U.S. In regards to this study then, I guess because you know the ground truth of whether they're lying or not and you're kind of assigning them to that, what are the things that come out in the people who are lying both ways? Are there similarities? And would you be able to detect that if you hadn't known that they were lying? So quite often, we probably wouldn't be able to tell only because these are socially undesirable things that people are being asked to report on. So if you ask someone like, how do you feel about this group? Quite often, they might actually just say, oh, they're fine. Or I don't really, I don't really have an opinion one way or the other. But again, being anonymous and being in a research study, people feel pretty open about expressing how they feel. I, I didn't go in content-wise to look at what people were writing about. Um, there's a whole nother study there to see like what were people actually picking out in terms of um, when they were deceptively humanizing or dehumanizing a group. But just anecdotally, people really talked about personal experiences. I thought that this was quite an interesting phenomenon where people would say, I had this personal interaction with this group and therefore that's why I feel this particular way. And rather than just largely making blanket statements about a particular group, people actually honed in on personal experiences. So there's something about stories, there's something about a narrative, there's something about personal experience that actually can either change someone's mind or can actually lead to that feeling, which then could potentially be an intervention to create more humanity in the world, right? We need to show amazing stories about groups that people say that they have these negative feelings about to perhaps either change your mind or show that, no, your your experience was maybe a one-off. And so this was for people who were telling the truth and lying? They were all sharing these personal stories? Quite often, yeah. Across different types, I often saw stories. Do you think the motivation underlying those things is the same? If someone were to be lying, that they can kind of take that cover of a personal story and be like, this isn't really what I think. It's not really statistical. It's just a made up story versus someone who really believes those things also is like, I believe this because it happened to me. We don't know. But the the interesting phenomenon here is that people are drilling down to a personal story, yet they're asked to be making generalizations about a group. And that is like, that's an interesting way to think about, well, if I'm being told to talk about all Democrats or all Republicans, right, because those were two of the eight outgroups that were in the study, they would make a generalization about that group probably when they're thinking about it. But then when they have to write about it, they go down to that personal experience. And that layered approach is actually kind of a psychologically interesting one. Like, uh, were they indeed thinking about that one incident when they were making that judgment? Um or are there different layers to it as they're as they're thinking about their about their judgments more deeply? So in this study, for the outcome of looking at deception, what did you hope to find in terms of making people lie about these groups? The main idea was sort of a theoretical interest of mine. Mm -hmm. We often think about dehumanization as people are expressing their negative thoughts and feelings about a group that tends to be looked at as less than or not. But that's sort of not the way the world works. <laughs> the world works by like, sometimes we have niceties in terms of, I can't really express how I feel about this group. And therefore I'm going, what strategies can I use to fake an outward sense of humanity? But really internally, I don't feel like these groups are human. And deception actually is that strategy. And so for mine, what I was trying to achieve with this work is sort of blend these two seemingly disparate literatures 
and suggest, no, there's actually a lot of symbiosis here. There's a lot of connection. And if we think about it in a way that like people lie and tell the truth about groups they like and dislike, that's a really important look at and something that language can really inform. And ultimately, are you looking at being able to detect these types of lies? It's really tough. Any sort of deception detection task is going to be fraught with base rate issues, can be fraught with not having enough data, which is, again, a good and bad thing. We don't have enough lies. People don't lie enough for us to really have a good enough sort of detection ability. So for me, deception detection literature and the deception detection problem is really interesting, but it sort of stays away from like my core interests. Are we actually able to detect lies? I feel like in media, there's a lot of stuff on lie detectors and that physiological component and body language. Are those real things? No, they're, the typical accuracy is about 54%. You'll see that number all scattered throughout the the deception literature. Um, We're way more accurate for truths than lies. Um, And quite often it's something that's called the veracity effect, pioneered by a really brilliant colleague of mine, Tim Levine. This idea that people are more accurate for truths than lies because we often guess true more often. Mm -hmm. We guess that, like you said a statement to me and I had to guess, is this a lie or a truth? I would more often guess true than not. We are biased towards the truth. Um, And that truth bias is a really powerful and adaptive thing. And that partly leads to really, really poor deception detection accuracy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So even technology doesn't really help us there. So not, not always. So for example, it's really interesting. There are some papers that you'll come across, at least in, let's say, the disinformation or fake news literature where computers can detect fake news or disinformation at the language level with like 95% accuracy, like super, super accurate. Those are all retrospective studies. Like, you know exactly what a lie is, you know exactly what a truth is. And the world doesn't allow us to have that really neat and clean design. Prospectively, it's really tough to detect lies and 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 truths because quite often we are biased towards that truth and there's no trigger to knock us out of that truth default state. We're not skeptical about something. We don't have counter arguments or counter evidence to suggest that one claim was actually not truthful. So there's a really amazing book. Again, it's by my colleague, Tim Levine called Duped. It's on his theory called Truth Default Theory, just published in 2020. It's a magnum opus of deception research. Highly recommend it for anyone who's really interested. It's really interesting because you said that people overestimate how many lies people tell, but it seems like in those individual cases, that generalized thinking kind of goes out the window. Your students, for example, will say that 70% of the time people are lying around dating apps, people are lying that much. So people seem to be overestimating how much deception there is out there. But then when it comes down to judging an individual case, they tend to go the opposite way. It's either they go the opposite way or they're just really bad at it still, right? They just, I think the underlying idea is that we have really, we're just really bad intuitors and detectors of deception. Like we cannot intuit how often people lie. If someone is lying, um, we need ground truth. And that is, that's why like fact-checking is really critical. It's why it's such an incredible, not only public service, but essential part of democracy. Like in order to figure out what lies are, we need to know what the truth is. And that's such a foundational part of deception research and an obvious one, but it really makes all the difference. So you do have a study looking at detecting fake news. So does that also go with what you've been saying that we're not very good at detecting that fake news? 
Yeah, so detection accuracy by humans, really horrible. Um, Just in the same way as like a a really hot topic right now of can people detect automated text from like chat GPT, any sort of AI system, people are horrible at it. No more than chance, 50-50 accuracy in terms of discerning, is this human generated or is this AI generated? It almost replicates the deception findings essentially of just being bad at intuiting human versus not, deception versus not. It's it's kind of remarkable. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's insane. I remember when I was an undergrad, which was only three, four years ago, and I was, you know, in philosophy class and we were talking about the Turing test and yeah. it was like, oh, Turing we're not. I know. Yeah, my, my, uh, one of my colleagues and actually he was my advisor in, in grad school, but I, I sort of call him a colleague now. Jeff Hancock is at Stanford. He has a great phrase and I, I think it's exactly true. Like the Turing test is dead. Yeah. That's what, that's what it feels like. It's shocking because I remember writing my essays about it and being like, we're not there yet. It's maybe not even in my lifetime, but now it's, yeah, ChatGPT is doing a better job at writing cover letters than I am. So Exactly. Except, and we have this preprint that's up right now that's under review at a journal that looks at like, okay, if we know that humans are really bad at detecting automated versus human generated speech, are there any linguistic differences when you ask, let's say a large language model to create or fake human experiences? And this also blends into my deception research because there's really great work where people have written fake hotel reviews or fake headlines. And I want to look at, well, do humans lie differently than automated assistants like ChatGPT? Like, do they lie? What's amazing is that you can ask ChatGPT to actually write fake hotel reviews. And there's a very separable linguistic signal in the AI generated hotel reviews from the human deceptive ones. And we're calling this like ChatGPT and AI generated text is like inherently deceptive. It cannot have a human-like experience. Like it is deceptive by its own very nature when it's relating a personal experience. But humans are intentionally deceptive. They have the choice to lie or tell the truth. And there are these separable linguistic signals, namely that automated text or AI generated text is less readable. It's more emotional when you're talking about personal experiences compared to humans. And these separable signals, are they detectable and separable by humans or is it more like that's learning? the next that's the next step right okay so that's the that's the thing we want to look at so statistically if we just look at what the classification accuracy between humans and automated text it's actually quite quite good i think it's okay. anywhere between like 60 to 80 percent in terms of being able to discriminate between ai generated text and human generated text can humans pick up on these things and actually use those cues perhaps to identify differences that's what we wait to be seen And is there a reason or do you have a theory as to why the AI would be more emotional when relating these personal stories? Yeah. So there's really great work. Again, Jeff Hancock and his group at Stanford that there's like a generally like a positivity and emotional bias in AI generated text. Like, so for example, in smart replies, like anything that you have on Gmail or something where it's like, yes, that sounds great. Where an AI basically did that for you. They tend to be like way more positive and way more flowery, I guess, if you want to put it, than what humans would produce. There's this positivity bias or emotional bias that often occurs that that AI produces compared to humans. This definitely might be beyond the scope of what you do, but does that have to do with the training sets that they're being trained on or is it implemented on purpose? Is there a way for us to know that? 
could be the training data could also be like the programmers say humans are really humans will respond more positively when you are positive to it right we really don't know but there is at least documented the evidence suggests there is that emotional or positivity bias okay definitely getting into that scary territory of i mean yeah if if we're if we're going to be using this stuff more often than the people who are coding it if there are these like specific breaks or specific kind of added weights that people are putting on Additionally, to these training sets that we don't really know what's going on, it's kind of scary how much is lying in the hands of. Yeah, I'll, I'll say like not even the if, but when we continue to be using these things because we've been using them for for like many many years now, mm -hmm. right? All the way from smart replies to getting reservations for a variety of different experiences, they're a part of our life. Just haven't known it yet, but now it's sort of like in our face. What are you working on next that you're most excited about? And I'm sure with the amount of publications and stuff that you're working on, this could be long, but whatever you feel like sharing. Sure. I'll share one thing that's kind of exciting and it relates to some of the deception work that we talked about earlier. So there's a segment of the population, it's called prolific liars or people who lie prolifically. There's individuals who lie significantly more than the everyday liar. I mentioned to you before that people tend to lie one to two times per day. Well, think about someone who says that they lie 10 times a day, 20 times a day, if not more. And what we know about these individuals is actually quite little. Don't know too much beyond that, about them beyond they tend to be younger, male, into 20 times higher on psychopathy compared to everyday liars. But for me, as someone who also likes to study deception and technology, I'm trying to figure out the digital lives of these prolific liars. So who do they interact with? How much do they interact with them? What do they do on an everyday basis in terms of their browsing history? Like, who are these individuals at the minute detail level of what seems everyday mundane things, but they actually could provide a really interesting glimpse psychologically into the lives of these prolific liars. I'm trying to do some, um, some of the first work of its kind to figure out like, who are these individuals psychologically through their digital traces? Could you give us a, just a glimpse of how you would go about finding these people and testing them? Yeah. So the way that you identify prolific liars, you have to track them over time because rather than just having like a one shot sense of deception, quite often you want to have their long-term behavior. You get them to cheat or lie on behavioral tasks. Number of times, let's say cheat on a math test or cheat on different word problems. You can separate the population based on those who are at the long right tail of a distribution compared to the remainder of the distribution. So you can separate them statistically. You can also separate them just through their self-report measures. There are a variety of different ways to do it, tend to yield the same answers. But essentially, if you think of a distribution of lying, lying is not normally distributed. So that long right tail is the population of people who we're really interested in. David was speaking about this dehumanizing scale. And I have a question about this because I've never heard of this before. I, I definitely know the, the images of evolution, you know, but I was wondering, by presenting someone with that scale and asking them to place where they think a certain group is, are you already then, are you changing their opinion for them to assume that they're on a different place on the scale? I was just wondering, before people are presented with that scale and that image, do they hold that belief or by showing that and saying, oh, you know what, you can put someone anywhere on that then they're like, oh, I, I, I can do that now. Does that make sense? Yeah, I see what you're saying. But I, I think that 
that question is a general psychology question of if you're saying to someone in intergroup stuff in general, if it's just a language question, that's like, how important is it for you personally to not behave in ways that are prejudiced, then, you know, that might influence how they're responding. I think this isn't an answer to your question, but I think to me that the most interesting part of that scale, and I think even the first research that came out about it was that the researchers didn't think this was going to work because who is going Uh. to put other humans, even if you're asked that, who is going to say that, oh, I think Chinese people are at a 60% on the evolutionary scale and put them as not even bipedal or something. That's insane. And I think they didn't think that it was going to work because before they started doing this work. So a lot of it is Nora Catelli's work and a, a late researcher now, Emile Bruno. They were doing this work on like blatant dehumanization because before that, there was this belief in psychology that a lot of prejudice has had, had gone underground. So that like we would never explicitly dehumanize someone else. It's just that we might hold these kind of implicit dehumanization. And most of the research in that space was we are more likely to ascribe complex thoughts and complex emotions to certain groups rather than out groups, for example. So people that are in our own group, we're more likely to think of them as complex and more human in that way. But there wasn't a lot of research about explicit dehumanization because there was kind of a rise of that after World War II. But then that fell after people were like, oh, civil rights happened. Everything's okay now. Obama's president. And then they started realizing that people were still explicitly dehumanizing others. And obviously, I mean, in the age of Donald Trump, where migrants were literally called animals, we see that. But then they started doing this research with that scale, and they were shocked that it worked yeah, because yeah. like we didn't think that people would even ever want to respond that. And and when I've used the scale, there are people, a lot of people who are like, what the hell, and who put everything at 100. But as David was saying, a lot of the averages were 70. And we can put a picture of the of what the scale is on, on our show notes. You can take a look at it. It's pretty intense. It's not that subtle of changes from from one picture to the next. It's a very evolution of man from on all fours to fully homo sapiens as we are now. I guess that's why I was so shocked to hear about the scale that people don't just put it at 100. I was wondering. I was like, oh, is it because they feel like they're forced? I, I, and I... Because I, I was so shocked. I, yeah, okay. So it sounds like the people originally were as well, that that anyone wouldn't put someone at 100. Yeah, exactly. I, I just didn't. Yeah, I just, I just don't. Under, I just, yeah, that just well, is shocking. So the prompt is, some people think that people can vary in how human-like they seem. According to this view, some people might seem highly evolved, whereas others might seem no different than lower animals. Using the sliders below, indicate how evolved you consider this group of people to be. And then you would rate those groups. So it's very explicit. I think there's obviously that first part of some people think this. So I don't think it's necessarily saying to people, you should be placing some groups at the top and some groups at the bottom, but it is saying you wouldn't be the only one to have this view. So kind of making it socially acceptable because obviously you'd think it's really not socially acceptable to put someone low or not at 100% on, on that slider. But yeah, it's I think those findings were groundbreaking and disturbing at the time when they came out maybe like 10 years ago-ish or less because we thought that we were past that. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. 
Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuza. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Minds Matter. In the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com.